Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 23, it says, The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. No kidding. It doesn't say that in the text, sorry. Back, back to the text. Verse 28. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Remember, we've come to the second in a series of four questions. In the last section, Jesus was asked a question designed to trap him into choosing between Caesar and God through the payment of taxes. It was a political question where the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians failed, the Sadducees hoped to succeed. The Sadducees hoped to trap and embarrass Jesus with a theological or a religious question. We know that politics divide. We also know that doctrine divides. The fact that politics divide doesn't eliminate the need to govern. And the fact that doctrine divides doesn't mean that there is no such thing as truth or that we need to believe the truth. I had a teacher who told me there's no such thing as a bad question. And I believe that for the most part, it's right and good to ask questions. But I've come to understand that questions can be asked with mixed motives. Some people don't really want to ask a question in order to get truth. They want to mislead or deceive or confuse or aggravate or humiliate. We know then that something is wrong. Have you ever asked a question but you had no desire whatsoever to really know the answer to the question? I'm certain that some of us are guilty of it, and I'm the first to concede that I was guilty of it. As a young man, I remember asking my priest, well, if God is so great, can he make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? I have no desire whatsoever to know the answer to the question. I'm just trying to trick the priest into giving some absurd answer. And of course he did. He was from Limerick, Ireland. And he said, well, you know, that's a mystery. The, the Bible is full of mysteries. 
Throughout my 16 years on the radio, people had asked me all kinds of questions, like where did Cain get his wife? And I would invariably say, eHarmony.com. <laughs> and then I would give the real answer from Genesis. Remember, Adam and Eve had other children. But again, most people don't really care whether or not God can make a rock so big that even he can't lift it. The right answer to that question, of course, isn't whether or not God can make a rock so big that he can lift it. The, the real answer is, would God, given his nature and his character, do something that's stupid? And the answer, of course, is no. God is going to act consistent with his character and consistent with his nature. Many people avoid or ignore the most important questions. Is there a God? Has he revealed himself? Is there a God? Has he spoken? Is Jesus Christ God and King and Savior? What really happens when you die? Now that's a good question. And so the Sadducees approached Jesus in verse 23. Look what it says. The same day, that's Tuesday. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, Who are the Sadducees? There's a note that's given to us in the text. They don't believe in the resurrection. That's why everyone in this building who ever went for any length of time to any church and asked the question, What's a Sadducee? They said, There's no resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see? But that's not the complete answer. They are descendants of Zadok, the high priest. And Zad, you see, comes from that word in part from Zadok. Zadok uh, supported Solomon in the building of the first temple. He supported David when his young son went rogue. Zadok produced the priestly dynasty in Israel. And so what happened is a group of people were raised up, the Sadducees, who controlled the temple precinct. And they built up wealth and, and through the sacrifices and money-making activities of the temple. And they were a part of the Jewish aristocracy so that some hundred years earlier, being infected and influenced by Greek philosophy, they had pretty much abandoned biblical orthodoxy. They were small in numbers, but they were wealthy and influential. The Sadducees had a very different belief system about God and the Bible and the afterlife. The group believed that good and evil were basically inside of the human heart, much like some of you, much like some of your family or friends. When you ask them about good and evil, they hem and haw, they wonder if there really is such a thing. They wouldn't subscribe to belief in a real and a personal Satan or demons or angels. The one supernatural being they did believe in was God. They believed in a God, but in the kind of God that didn't really 
keep you alive into the afterlife. The Sadducees rejected the doctrine of the survival of the soul or life after death. They didn't believe in a future judgment and they didn't really believe in a future reward. So in Acts 23.8, we see four Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So the Sadducees based their unbelief in the resurrection in part on a basic misunderstanding of the biblical purpose for the resurrection. In their way of thinking, why would God want to raise up bodies? What purpose does a body serve? Do we have relationships which survive into the next life? And since they denied the existence of an eternal soul and supernatural beings other than God, they believed it was absurd to believe in a literal heaven and to believe in a literal hell. And this should shock you. It should alarm you. It should also convince you that it's possible to be very religious but not really have any religious depth. Some of you have wondered, how can there be pastors? How can there be priests? How can there be people who don't really believe that the Bible is true? They don't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They don't really believe that there's a Satan who's trying to deceive you or a hell to be avoided at all costs. But these Sadducees weren't content to simply deny the supernatural. They held in contempt everyone who believed in a literal resurrection. By the way, contempt is the act of viewing someone or something as vile and worthless. And so the Sadducees began to think of the Pharisees as vile and worthless. The historian Josephus describes the Sadducees as speaking rudely to everyone, even among themselves. Charles Ashcroft writes, quote, Perhaps the greatest sin one person can exert against another is contempt. To exercise contempt is to invite contempt. Any person who looks with contempt upon another sets in motion an evil force which rarely stops, unquote. And I think that that's true. I think it's indicative of the world in which we're living in. Where liberals and conservatives, where Republicans and Democrats, where even Americans are getting further and further polarized and intolerant of each other and their views. The Sadducees held the Pharisees in contempt. The Pharisees returned the contempt. Both hated Jesus. The real question that we should ask at this point is do you hold people in contempt? Do I sometimes find myself looking with contempt on people or persons? Because again, if you believe that someone is vile or worthless because they don't share your worldview, they don't share your outlook, they don't share your opinion, they don't share your beliefs, then you are misrepresenting God and what the Bible has to say about people who are made in the image of God. For the most part, the Sadducees believed heaven and hell were right here on the earth. Just like some People will leave this 
service and they will enter into conversations and they'll have that kind of a conversation. What do you believe about heaven and, and, and hell? And someone will respond, I believe it's right here on the earth. Do you have a good answer? Are you able to say, you know what, you're right. For many people, this place is as close to heaven as they will ever get. For some people, for Christians, this place is as close to hell as you will ever get. The ruling Sadducees believed their position was the orthodox position, the correct position. They believed in the authority of the first five books of Moses, the law, the Torah. So the Sadducees rejected the authoritative writings of the prophets and the Psalms. The Sadducees were not the only ones in the ancient world who rejected the supernatural. And like I said, some Greeks taught a doctrine concerning the transmigration of souls, but an actual resurrection was laughable to them. Just like it's laughable to people in our own culture and society. When you talk about a resurrection from the dead, in their mind they picture some sort of zombie apocalypse where the dead come back to life and still retain all of the fallen nature and the corrupt nature. But that's not what the Bible is talking about. A real resurrection from the dead was un thinkable to many of the people in that culture. So when Paul went to Athens and preached at Mars Hill to the Greek philosophers, he was received with mockery by some, polite interest by others. Acts 17, 18, the, certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and said, some said, what, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And so the Sadducees embraced the materialism of this world. And they rejected the promise of eternal life in the next world. And so as they come to Jesus, keep that in mind. Because you're thinking perhaps, well, they're Jews and they're in the temple and they're priests. These are religious people. But think about what they believe in light of their question just for a moment. Look what it says in verse 24. Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Whew. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Now, you have to understand that even as they're asking the question, they're trying hard to keep from laughing. They understand that their question is absurd. Part of what they're trying to bring out is in their way of thinking that Jesus is going to have to concede that any belief in a, in a resurrection is absurd. So in order to trap Jesus, the, the Sadducees come up with a hypothetical illustration designed to embarrass him and humiliate him. 
Perhaps the Sadducees had used this very question in the past with Pharisees leaving them speechless or the disciples who believed in the spirit world and the resurrection of the dead. They talked with them about it. By the way, the story is based on the Jewish law of the Leverite marriage. The Leverite comes from a Latin word, which means a husband's brother. It has nothing to do with the tribe of Levi in the Bible. The practice is described in Deuteronomy. Chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. If a brother dies he leaves his, and leaves his wife childless, the surviving brother had a responsibility to raise a family with the dead man's wife. And the practice may seem strange to you. It may seem bizarre. It might even seem a little creepy. But the purpose of the Leverite marriage was to keep the family intact to preserve the honor and the wealth of the family because in that culture and in that society in order to protect people and provide for people and then transfer wealth, this is what was done. Now they may have borrowed the story or the idea from an apocryphal book. Some of you may have grown up in a different religious tradition like myself where there were apocryphal books called um, all kinds, First and Second Esdras, the Maccabees. There was a book called Tobit, um, which tells the story of a woman who married seven times. And on their wedding night, the demon Asmodeus snuck into their marital bedroom and strangled each one. Now, no one really knows where they came up with the question, but wherever it came up and however it came up, they're certain that they have Jesus over a barrel. Now, again, for purposes of discussion, let's say that there's two kinds of questions. There's honest questions and there's dishonest questions. There are people who want to know the truth about God and there are people who genuinely aren't interested in the truth. After 16 years on the radio, I had literally thousands of questions. I'd like to say that there was never a stupid or foolish question, but there were lots. But maybe the most stupid of all came from a guy who said, okay, you believe in the rapture. Well, hey, let's just say a person gets a kidney a transplant, and the person who donates the kidney is, a, is, a, is a, an unbeliever. Um, is the kidney left in the rapture? And I go, you know what? I got to tell you something. I've had some fairly stupid questions in my life, but yours takes the cake. I mean, if you cut your hair at the barber shop, if you trim your toenails, don't you, under you don't understand the purpose of the rapture or the meaning of the rapture and this is exactly what's happening in the text. I've met many people who really do have a sincere desire to know the truth. But because they want to ignore their own sin or the solution to the problem of sin, sometimes people will go to extraordinary lengths 
to somehow distance themselves even from the question so that they don't have to recognize God. They don't have to recognize Jesus. They don't have to recognize their need for a savior. And the Sadducee question is foolish, but it also reveals an acute problem about what was happening in the time of Jesus and the views that were held. The Sadducees rejected a literal resurrection. And the reason why they rejected a literal resurrection is because they couldn't find chapter and verse in the first five books of Moses. Just like now, where people struggle with certain issues. They'll say, you know, in the New Testament, Jesus never addresses the issue of homosexuality or homosexual marriage. It's true in a sense, but in a sense it's not true. You're, you're right, Jesus never specifically condemns word for word homosexual behavior, but he also doesn't condemn specifically child molestation. The fact that Jesus doesn't address the issue specifically doesn't mean that the issue hasn't been addressed in principle in the Bible. You sometimes will talk to people who have already made up their mind that the Bible can't possibly be true, or there might be statements that may or may not be true, or principles that may or may not be true, but the Bible certainly can't be true in everything that affirms. You may have talked with someone who genuinely believes or has genuine problems, but some are genuinely combative. They're not looking for an answer. They're looking for a fight. Was Jonah really swallowed by a sea creature? My favorite answer is, look, when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. What if he's not there? Then you can ask him. Do you really believe what the Bible says? When it touches on the issue of history or science, can the Bible's claims about creation and the fall and redemption be true if science challenges or rejects those claims? I'd like to say that the, the unsaved people are always honest, but it's not true. In Jeremiah 17, 9, we learn the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I remember a song by Dennis Teese who said, Did Adam and Eve have navels or a blank spot where it should be? Do other folks lie awake at night or is it only me thinking about the question that plagues all mankind? In the song, he says, belly button fuzz was a part of creation. How could I have been so blind? I think I'll start a church someday to preach this creed of mine because Adam and Eve had navels and I'll prove it at the end of time. Yeah, what a great question. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? This is one of my other favorites. And if they did, was it an innie or an Audi? You're probably going, did you really get questions like that? Yeah, I really got questions like that. So how do we give honest answers? Even if the question seems less than honest. How do we give honest answers when the world is filled with skeptics and, and critics? 
We live in a world where people are trying to introduce unsolvable dilemmas. But when I'm faced with a difficult question, I always ask myself at least these few things. Number one, what does the Bible say about this question? Number two, has the question already been asked and answered? Number three, how does the character of God or the revelation of God inform the answer? Number four, what would Jesus say or do if he were faced with this same question? And so, again, we go back to the text and we ask ourselves the question, what is happening in the text? The Sadducees reject a resurrection because... They can find no explicit mention in the first five books of Moses. Moses wrote that if a man dies without a son, the brother was to produce an heir and guarantee that the family not lose their land or their possessions. And by the way, the book of Ruth gives an excellent illustration of this law in action in Ruth chapter 3 and chapter 4 in order to protect the widow in order to protect those people who were hurt or who were at risk in a culture that provided very little protection. The Sadducees, listen carefully, wrongly assumed that the resurrection body would have all of the functions of an earthly body and that they would have all of the responsibilities in the next life that they had in this life. The Sadducees couldn't imagine or conceive of a resurrection life, and therefore they decided that God either could not or would not raise the dead. And since Moses never addressed this issue, they thought it must be an absurd addition to the revelation that God had given in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But look at Jesus' answer in verse 29. Jesus says to them, or answers and says, said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scripture, nor the power of God. Notice how Jesus answers their hypothetical question. Jesus makes it clear that the Sadducees are wrong about the resurrection and their underlying assumption. He doesn't go, well, that's your interpretation. Or everybody's entitled to their opinion. That's not what's happening in the text. Jesus is pointing out their failure to properly understand or apply the scripture. And their failure and refusal to believe in the power of God. Now, I want to pause for a moment because in that answer you have an answer to almost every question that could possibly be asked you. In what way? The best way to convince the skeptic or the doubter that your bayonet is made of steel is to... I know, so one of you said stab him. That's the wrong answer. <laughs> we're, we're not trying to hurt people. Let, let's, let's not just, you know, eviscerate. Let's... Let's just back off just a little bit. Can the bayonet cut the button off of his shirt? Is it possible just to nick him a little bit to prove that the steel is, is sharp? 
This is exactly what Jesus is doing with their question. Jesus is going to prove to them that the scriptures can be trusted and that the power of God is real. He is going to speak to the heart. And so when he says, you are mistaken, it sounds very light. But the word mistaken is very interesting in the original language. It comes from the Greek word planeo. We get the word planet from that word. When the ancients would look up in the sky and they would see the lights moving. They saw them as wandering. And so the idea became the idea of wandering off course. It was a euphemism for being deceived. And so the answer that Jesus gives is going to provide three things that you can give to the rationalist or the materialist or the person who believes that this material world is all that there is or all that ever was. Number one, self-deception. Number two, ignorance of the spiritual content of the scripture. Number three, disbelief in the divine power. So when Jesus says, you are mistaken, he's basically saying, you're deceived. You've wandered from the truth. He's accusing the Sadducees of being self-deceived. This would be like you're standing before the Supreme Court and you address a justice and you say, you're mistaken, not understanding the Constitution or the law. Do you understand what a terrifying statement that would be to make to a Supreme Court justice? You're mistaken. You don't understand the Constitution and you don't understand the law. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. I want you to note something. Jesus doesn't deal with the absurdity of their question. The real issue, as far as Jesus is concerned, the real heart and soul of the matter is the reality of whether or not there is a God and whether or not you survive death. Will there be a resurrection? Jesus is more concerned about the Sadducees' unbelief. He sees their unbelief as a huge problem. When a person is gripped by unbelief, they're sometimes willing to massage the truth or manipulate the truth or distance themselves from the truth. How do you minister to a person? How do you help a person who's gripped by unbelief? They want or they at least seem to express some idea of wanting to understand the word of God, understand the power of God. Think about the liberal church goer who doesn't really believe in the supernatural. Think about the people who don't believe in the authority, the inerrancy, or the power of, of the word of God. Is the Bible true? Again, these two problems, not understanding the word of God and not understanding the power of God, almost invariably results in self-deception. For the self-deceived person, they're not looking for evidence or even for evidence that's supported in the Bible. Donald Gray Barnhouse writes, and yet these unbelieving minds belong to people who should have known the scripture and the power of God. 
But they weren't interested in having the scriptures master them. They much preferred to reduce the supernatural word of God to a system of doctrines that could be used to settle theological arguments. They didn't see it as a message from God that communicates life. Unquote. The Sadducees were in trouble because they were ignorant of God's word. And they were ignorant of God's power. I can guarantee you that almost every error in theology can be traced back to one of those two things. They ignore and neglect the word of God. Or they misunderstand and misrepresent the nature and the character of God. The Sadducees didn't really believe that God should or would or could cause the dead to rise. But before we criticize them too harshly, we owe it to ourselves to turn our attention to ourselves. Let me ask you a simple question. Should they have believed the Bible? Should we believe the Bible? There it is for all practical purposes. They should have believed it, but they didn't. How can we say Jesus comes into our lives, forgives our sins, reconciles us to God, places his Holy Spirit inside of us, and then refuse to believe in him, or refuse to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, or refuse to believe that his word is sufficient to meet the deepest needs of our lives. How can God save the sinner, forgive the sinner, sanctify a believer, take our dead and stinking, rotten corpses and find us wherever we happen to be and then bring us back to life? One of the questions I often got asked on the radio was, is it wrong to get cremated? And I would say, all you're doing is accelerating the process. To dust you are, to dust you will return. You mean God can regather all of your atoms and molecules and reconstitute you? Yes. So many people believe, well, what if you die? And then you decompose, and then the grass grows, and then a cow comes by and eats the grass, and then someone milks the cow, and then someone drinks the milk, and pretty soon your molecules are scattered all over the universe. How can God bring you back to life? If you can believe the first sentence in the Bible, the rest is easy. In the beginning, God created... If you believe that, then all the rest of it is easy. If that's true, if that's true, God can bring the dead back to life. God can address mental and emotional difficulties. God has the ability to save and sanctify the sinner, but is he powerless against addiction? Is he powerless against lying? Is he powerless against greed? Is he powerless against our obsessions? Does God have the ability to provide victory in your life? Well, if you're joining us on Wednesdays in the book of Joshua, you know that he does. In verse 30, look what it says. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. 
when Jesus says that, for in the resurrection, he reminds them that there is a resurrection. It is true. Jesus will say, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, even if he were dead, yet should he live. In the eternal state, we neither marry nor are given in marriage. So the LDS or the Mormons and the Muslims are mistaken. Because they don't understand the word of God. And they don't understand the nature of God. Jesus quotes Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, in the, in, in, in the following verses. We become like angels in heaven in what sense? That is, we are beings fit for heaven. Jesus is going to point out that you've been given a body that's appropriate for where you are. And you will be given a body for, that's appropriate for where you will be. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15 at length. Jesus isn't saying or the Bible doesn't affirm or teach that we lose our identity or lose our gender. One of the questions I often got asked was, will we be able to recognize each other in heaven? My favorite answer, of course, was Spurgeon, who said, do you think we're going to be more stupid in heaven than we are on the earth? <laughs> what a great answer. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know this, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. In what way will we be like him? We'll have a resurrection body. In verse 31, concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Verse 31 should forever settle the issue of whether or not the Bible is God's word. Read it again. Concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? This, remember, he's talking to Sadducees. What do they believe? The five books of Moses. What do they read? The five books of Moses. As they're reading those books, look at what he says. What was spoken to you, spoken to you by God. Jesus affirms the dual authorship of the scripture, that men were moved by the Holy Spirit, that God spoke in the past. And God has spoken in the present through Jesus. Jesus divides the heart of the Torah, the first five books of the law, the book that the Sadducees recognize, and then quoting Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. He's basically saying, you believe Moses, you trust Moses. What did Moses say? Haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? Jesus holds the Sadducees responsible for what they read in the writings of Moses. Over a thousand years before the birth of Christ, God spoke. In verse 32, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Look carefully at what Moses says. And then look carefully at what Jesus says. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Let's do a little exercise just for a moment. What's the argument of Jesus? Number one, God made promises to the patriarchs concerning the land of Israel and God's Messiah. That's Jesus. Number two, these promises weren't fulfilled in their lifetime. Number three, 
when God spoke to Moses, the final authority as far as the Sadducees were concerned, in the burning bush, the bodies of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were already dead and in the grave in Hebron. Number four, yet God speaks of himself as the God of the living. Number five, he has to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Number six, therefore the resurrection is an absolute necessity from what we know about the nature of God and the character of God. Jesus isn't just simply saying God's alive and they're alive. He's saying that and so much more. What is your question? Whatever it is, always ask yourself this. What does the Bible say about my question? And what does the nature and the character of God reveal about my question? The logic of Jesus is irrefutable. God made a covenant with the patriarchs. An eternal covenant requires Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to survive in some real way, in some real place. And look what it says in verse 33. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. You know why? For the same reason we should be astonished at his teaching. Jesus speaks as if everything that the Bible says is true. As if the character of God and the nature of God and the revelation of God is true. The Sadducees should have known better. What does the Bible teach? What does the character of God demand? Now more than ever, we have to commit ourselves to the word of God and the power of God. Someone once said, give me a fulcrum and a lever and I'll move the world. Christ is the lever and the power and the believing heart is the fulcrum. The power of Christ's resurrection can raise us from an earthly and a selfish life, according to Philippians 3.10. The power of God's grace gives us glory, and we can glory in weakness and in sickness, according to 2 Corinthians 12. The power of his inheritance preserves us a heavenly inheritance. The power of his love gives us the ability to enjoy all things that pertain to life and godliness and the knowledge of our Savior. The power of his favor can make us faithful to him. So what do we really know about the future? Only what the Bible teaches. The only reliable source of information about God, about the nature and the condition of humanity, about the fall, about how we can be saved, is found in the Bible. So what does the resurrection from the dead mean for you and me? Well... It has to mean that you're going to be given a body that's appropriate for where you'll be forever. It has to mean that, but it also has to mean so much more. It means that God is satisfied and glorified in keeping his promise, just like God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus promised you, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, 
even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. It means that Jesus can bring us back to life. It means that we're, un we're united in Christ. It means that every foe is vanquished. It means that we live forever with him. It means that the Holy Spirit is given to the believer. It must mean we get power by the Holy Spirit because Jesus said, I go. And if I go, I'm going to go and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will be with you and he will be in you. We're given power for sickness, power for patience, power for keeping. We're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Remember, 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 no matter what question is ever asked, what does the Bible have to say about this? Number two, what does the nature and the character of God reveal in relationship to this question? I wish I could tell you that I have all the answers to all the questions, but it's not true. But my pastor once told me, and I never forgot it, don't give up what you know for what you don't know. Just because you don't know the answer to every single question doesn't mean there isn't an answer. And by all means, don't give up what you know for what you don't know. Let's pray. Lord, Thanks for this time. Thanks for grace and mercy. Thanks for your love. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who love you, who love the word. Lord, people who will search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And that, Lord, we would constantly remind ourselves of your nature and your character and how it reveals the answers to life's deepest and toughest questions. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.